23. Proverbs 23. We're going to continue our study through the book of Proverbs. And tonight we're going to examine what God's wisdom book declares to us about overindulgence, about a lack of self-control, specifically, although not exclusively, in the realm of drunkenness and alcohol. Our society, particularly in America, is dominated by a message of overindulgence, of self-indulgence beyond our created bounds, beyond what we ought. You see that in beer ads during football games. You see that in the language of our media consumption, right? We have a word for it, binge-watching Netflix. I'm going to watch it for hours and hours on end. The message to consumers is that you need just one more, right? A little bit more won't hurt you. You deserve a little bit more. You're worth it. But the Bible reveals to us that we were designed to operate within certain bounds. We have certain created limits, and the habitual disregard of those limits will wreak havoc not only upon our lives, on our bodies, but on those around us as well. So let's look at Proverbs 23. I'll begin reading at verse 29 and go through the end of the chapter. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? And who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine and those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at the wine when it is in the cup, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and it stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. You will be like the one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like the one who goes up on top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I wake? I must have another drink. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. Let's pray to that God. Holy Father, we come to you again in our need. We need your Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to help us to grow in self-control, to help us to grow in our temperance, to help us to rein in our passions and our appetites and to use them not for an end in and of themselves, not for indulging our own self-pleasure, but for our own holiness and for the glory of your name, for the expansion of your kingdom and for the edification of the church. Help us be holy just as you are holy. In Christ's name, amen. Tonight we'll look at drunkenness from four different angles, and like a good Southern Baptist, I alliterated all the points. First, we'll see the risks associated with drunkenness, and then the root of the problem, and then the remedy in Christ, and then the result. Risks, root, remedy, and result. So let's look first and see what the divine author of this proverb would have us understand about the risks associated with drunkenness. The risk associated with drunkenness. Our proverb is tonight in the form of a riddle. It asks a series of questions. It begins with, who has 
woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? And who has redness of eyes? And the answer, as we've already read in verse 30, is the one who lingers over wine. It's the drunkard. And we are meant to see that he will have pain in every major area of life, right? First, he will have woe and sorrow, or he'll, he'll have emotional pain. He will say things to his family and his friends that cut very deeply. Or he'll promise things, but he'll never follow through. People can't trust him. And his own lack of trustworthiness makes him even more angry, which leads to even more emotional carnage. More woe. More sorrow. Second, the drunkard is promised to have strife and complaining, or he'll have relational pain and friction. Right? His boss will increasingly notice that the man's work is not what it used to be. His mind isn't as sharp. He seems to take off a little bit earlier and earlier each month, or he comes in a little bit later and a little bit later. He doesn't meet the deadlines that he used to make. His wife will get less and less attention, which seems always reserved for the bottle instead. The kids don't see dad anymore, and when they do see him, he's not his self. He's short-tempered. He's explosive. Everyone gets used to not having him around, which makes him even more lonely and drives him to drink even more. Third, not only will he have emotional and relational pain, his wounds, he will have wounds without cause. He'll have red eyes, or we could say he'll have physical pain, physiological pain. His body was not designed for such abuse and consistent overindulgence begins to show itself physically. The thing that has promised him life and the lack of pain is bringing only death and compounding his pain. And those of us who have lived long enough to see the terrible costs that come with drunkenness, we've also seen that this pain is usually gradual. Right? Nobody wakes up one day after a life of sobriety and all of a sudden is a drunkard you don't become a drunk overnight drunkenness begins with a little taste here a little overindulgence there you get a little too tipsy one night here and you kind of enjoy that feeling and you want to you want to keep that feeling coming you want to keep tasting of that you begin chasing it a little bit further a little bit further until one day you realize you are barreling down the road of drunkenness and there's a wake of emotional havoc behind you. And what makes this sin even more tragic is that the pain is usually most evident to everyone but the drunkard. The painful effects of drunkenness are too evident to everyone around him. Right? He's, he seems to come to every function with that same red solo cup in his hand. And over time you begin to expect it of him. You can't even remember the last time he didn't have a beer in his hand. Everyone around him can tell that he's drunk, even if he won't admit it. He thinks he can hold his liquor. But his eyes are red, as the proverb tells us. You can see it in his eyes. And if you've lived in proximity with a drunkard, you can probably spot the signs. The eyes are bloodshot, the pupils are dilated, even long after they quit drinking for the night. 
The face looks well-worn. Their body is not as useful as it used to be. And it seems that he's aging faster than everyone else because, as this proverb is warning us, he's wounding his body. If he drinks enough, the skin will even begin to weather because of the consistent pounding against his liver with all that alcohol. And perhaps the most tragic piece of this whole situation is that the drunkard's pain is entirely avoidable. It's entirely avoidable. He inflicts pain upon his family. He's abusing his body. He makes himself a stench to his employer and to his neighbors. He drains himself of resources and of his usefulness to society. And all for something that he could have passed up. He could have left it alone. He could have left the liquor store. He could have just walked right past the bar. And if we skip down to verse 32, we see also that wine, that the overindulgence in wine has a bite. Right? When the seeds of drunkenness bear fruit, it comes with a sting. It says, in the end, it bites like a serpent and it stings like an adder. Overindulgence will bring pain and grief. Period. The end. There's no other end to the road. It will be unpleasant. Regardless of whatever promises have been made, the overindulgence of alcohol promises to take away pain, but it only multiplies it in the end. It promises to bring us friends and to bring us life and to bring us happiness, but in the end it divides friends, it brings death, and it robs us of true joy. Not only does it bring pain, but verses 33 through 35 show us how drunkenness changes how we even view reality. Your eyes begin to see strange things, verse 33 says. When you're drunk, you can't even trust your own perception, right? Some drunks are paranoid. They think everyone's talking about them. They're constantly looking around, seeing how they can pick a fight. Some drunks are fearful. Right? They know that they're doing something wrong and they're desperately afraid of getting caught. They'll do anything to hide the bottle, to hide evidence of what they're trying to do. Some are fearful, thinking of the enemy is all around them. Some are angry. Right? Men that want to lash out at everyone around them because all of their problems are because of you people, not because of me. And what happens when a drunk can't rightly perceive reality? Well, he he says perverse things. His heart will utter perverse things, verse 33 says. Many of us have seen that. Drunkenness loosens lips and it lets out whatever venom is in the heart and it flows freely. Right? That's what Jesus says. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And it is the heart that is revealed when a drunk opens his mouth. Alcohol doesn't place anything new in his heart. It just opens the hinges of his mouth. But as if that isn't enough, the next few verses use nautical language to describe his orientation. Right? You'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on top of the mast. In short, you'll be like someone who's half drunk with seasickness on a rocky boat going back and forth. You're unable to even stand up straight. You can't support yourself and you're not of any use at all to the other sailors trying to work on the boat. The only thing you're good for is chumming up the water. You're so disoriented that verse 35 tells you that you'll say, They struck me, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I didn't feel it. 
That state of disorientation and of false perception is true in two different ways. Right? It's true when he's drunk, and it's also true when he's hungover. When he's drunk, he says, they struck me and I didn't feel it. Right? I'm, a, I'm a man's man. I can take anybody. You've been around drunks much at all. You, you know how they think they can take on the world. They're puffed up by pride. They're feeling no pain. They think they're invincible. Nobody can talk to me like that. He'll take on the world if he has to. But the proverb is also true when he's hung over because he says, they struck me and I didn't feel it. That is, his body feels beaten, but there's no evidence of a fight. His body is aching all over. His stomach is churning, but he's got no black eyes, no broken bones. He feels like he was in a fight, but he doesn't remember fighting. And what does a man in this condition crave? Well, how does he go about solving his disoriented, unpleasant hangover? Well, they, they want another drink. That's the best cure for a hangover, they say. Have another drink. Start that sad cycle all over again. And so what are we to make of this sorry drunk that's being portrayed in the passage? What are we to learn? Well, the simplest and most evident lesson is in verse 31. Don't look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, and when it goes down. And the, the writer is not merely suggesting that for us to look at wine is sinful. Rather, we're not to linger over it. We're not to lust over it, to be frequent to the cup. We're not supposed to use our imagination to entrance us with all of the promises that wine can offer, right? We don't sit at work longing, daydreaming for when we can get home and crack open that first beer. In short, we're not to be enslaved to alcohol. Which leads to my second point, which is the root of the problem of drunkenness. The root of the problem of drunkenness. The root is not the alcohol itself. The Bible nowhere gives an absolute prohibition for alcohol. In fact, it may come as a shock to some of us, the Bible actually prescribes alcohol in some instances. Proverbs 31 Verses 4 to 7 say that a king should avoid wine, and he should save it for the poor and dying man to alleviate his pain. Proverbs actually commends wine to someone in intense suffering as a way to alleviate their plight. Further, Paul tells Timothy to have some wine for the sake of his stomach in the New Testament. And so the problem with drunkenness is not a problem of alcohol, ultimately, it's fundamentally a problem of enslavement, of a lack of self-control. It's not the drink that's sinful, it's drunkenness. Just like the feast is not the problem, it's gluttony that's the problem, or enslavement to food. The problem is enslavement to any part of creation, not the creation itself, which God called good. When God created all things... He pronounced them good, and that goodness of creation continues today. But when we place anything above God and we begin to bow down to it, we're no longer free. We're enslaved to it. Have you ever been enslaved to something? Maybe even a good thing. Work is a good thing. 
but enslavement to it is idolatry and sinful. Shopping, buying things is not inherently sinful. Indeed, it's praised. The virtuous woman in Proverbs 31 is praised for her industry. But being enslaved to spending is idolatry and sinful. Having a beer is not necessarily evil, but enslavement to alcohol is. Paul says that physical exercise is of some value, but if you're enslaved to working out, then you're worshiping a false idol. Any good thing can be perverted into something that might enslave you. What is it that it seeks to enslave you? Is it enslavement to the praise of others? Right? If you're a people pleaser, are you desperately afraid of someone not liking you? Afraid to tell somebody no? Are you enslaved to entertainment? The potential list of idols is limitless. And so if you're not sure if something is enslaving you or not, let me give you a few questions to ask. Some diagnostic questions. Think about whatever it is that might be enslaving you and plug it into these questions. If I'm able, if I am not able to have or to do this thing, what is my reaction? If I am unable to have or to do this, this thing, what is my reaction? Right? Just like an alcoholic shows symptoms when he cannot have alcohol, if we're enslaved to something else, we begin to show symptoms. Do you get antsy? You get agitated, right? You get frustrated. Are you unable to sleep? Are you irritable if you can't have this thing or you can't do this thing? If so, you might be enslaved. Be warned. Or another question, if someone else can have this thing, but you can't, what's your reaction? That is, am I easily jealous of others in this particular area? Am I easily resentful and bitter because they can have it and I cannot? Be careful, you might be enslaved. Third if other people found out how much I did this thing, would I in any way be ashamed or embarrassed? Right? If other people found out that I watched 37 hours of Netflix last week, would I be ashamed of that? Should I be? If they found out how much I'm on Facebook, if they found out how many beers I had each night, if they found out I just ate a whole dozen Krispy Kreme, right? would I and should I be ashamed of that? If so, I might be enslaved to something. Plug it in, whatever, whatever your potential slave master is. They may help us discern areas where we're failing, where we may lack self-control, where we might have replaced God with another slave master. If we're honest, we all have areas where we lack self-control, where we too easily overindulge, where we let sin lead us astray. 
Paul even tells us in Romans 6, 16, that when we fail in these ways, when we fail, we present our bodies as slaves to sin, which leads to death. That's the ultimate destination and the just reward for each of these kinds of sin is death. Paul, in the very same chapter, speaks of death as the wages earned, the just payment for anyone employed in the work of sin, which is all of us. All of us at some point have overindulged in something. We've gotten drunk. We've engorged ourselves at a feast. We've watched too much football. We've spent more money than we had. We've done any number of things. And by doing so, we demonstrated our enslavement, not to God, but to sin. We were enslaved not to righteousness, but to lawlessness. And thereby demonstrated that we deserved eternal damnation and death. But Paul doesn't just stop there in Romans 6. He reminds us of my third point, which is the remedy for our sin. The remedy for our sin. He says in Romans 6, 17 and 18, But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart, obedient to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, having been liberated from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Right? We were once in bounds to sin, but now we're free in Christ to operate within the bounds of our created order, of our physical frame. Those that have come to Christ have been set free from sin. We've been liberated. We're no longer bound by our passions and our appetites. We're no longer defined by our old habits, by our weaknesses. We, Christ has come to set the captives free. To redeem from Egypt those that were in chains. To bring out of slavery of addiction and enslavement a people for himself. A chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. That's the good news of the gospel. That whatever our sins, whatever our patterns, whatever our enslavement, whatever our weaknesses, we can be forgiven because Christ was perfectly self-controlled. He never once overindulged. He never once had a passion or a lust for anything outside of what was perfectly holy. He never gave in to the temptation to be drunk. He never succumbed to the passions or appetites of his flesh. His feelings never led him astray. See, Christ was the man that Adam should have been but never was. And that we should have been but never were. See, Adam fixed his gaze on the fruit that didn't belong to him, just like the drunkard lingers and gazes at wine sparkling in the cup. But Christ fixed his gaze on the mission that the Father had given to him. His mission was to honor the Father through perfect obedience, and he did that in every way. And because of his faithfulness, because of his self-control, because of his righteousness, we can be set free. Christ is the remedy of our enslavement. He's, been free, he's freed us from our bondage to sin. And that's the good news of the gospel. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just that he did this thing back then and then we're free to do whatever we want. That's not what freedom in Christ means. Now I'd like to spend the remainder of our time tonight talking about my fourth point, which is the result. What's the result of Christ as our remedy? What's the result of Christ as our remedy? What happens when we're freed by Christ? The result is that we begin to bear real, demonstrable, apparent spiritual fruit. One of which is self-control. 
the result of our coming to Christ and receiving Him as the remedy for our enslavement is that we begin to bear the spiritual fruit of self-control. Paul continues the enslavement language in Romans 6, even applying it to our life in Christ. So far from freedom in Christ, meaning that we can do whatever we want, right? I've been forgiven, I can go do whatever I please now. It's not what Paul says. We see instead that we have a new master. Romans 6, 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members, your body, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Leading to holiness. We become slaves not to sin, but slaves to righteousness. Instead of being driven by our passions and our flesh, we become driven by the Holy Spirit. Rather than being enslaved to indulgence and to pleasure, we're enslaved to Christ. Which looks like, among other things, self-control. Temperance. We've been given the ability to rein in our passions and to use our appetites not to indulge the flesh, but to strengthen our spiritual vitality and our usefulness. So what does this look like? How do we do this? If I've been enslaved to something, how do I begin to grow in this area of self-control? Well, let me give us five principles to keep in mind as we grow in self-control. Five principles that the Bible teaches about self-control. Number one, the battle for self-control begins with this core truth. Anyone that is in Christ is free. Anyone that is in Christ is free. That means that sin no longer has dominion over you. Sin is no longer your master. The New Testament uses a variety of language to describe this reality of our new nature in Christ, also called our regeneration. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Romans 6.4, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We've been buried with Christ and raised in life. The old self has been crucified with him in order that the, our body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin, Romans 6, 6 through 7. We've died. We're united to Christ in his death. And because we've died in Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin. We've been set free. Titus 3, you've been saved by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You've been washed. The fact of our new birth, our new life in Christ is a bedrock truth that we cannot forget when we're battling against sin and battling for self-control. Sin is no longer our master. You don't have to sin. And sometimes when somebody is really in a deep rut of sin, they can lose all hope and think it's inevitable. I'm never going to win. And they need the truth that if you're in Christ, you're, you've been set free. You don't have to do this. This is not a hopeless battle. You can defeat this. You need that hope. Anyone that is in Christ is free. And those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. Second, 
Although we have real, genuine freedom in Christ, that does not mean the absence of struggle. Although we have genuine freedom in Christ, that does not mean the absence of struggle. The New Testament makes clear this dynamic in several ways. We are born again, and yet our old sinful nature clings so closely. We are a new man, yet the old man won't leave us alone. We're raised again with Christ to walk in newness of life, but our old life will just not let us go. And so the New Testament paints a picture for us that is not overly triumphant, but is soberly optimistic. And we need both of these dynamics in mind if we're going to be sober-minded and self-controlled. You see, if we forget that we're new creations in Christ, we can lose hope when we're in the trenches battling sin. We need to be reminded that sin is no longer our master, that we've been given the Holy Spirit himself, and that we can have growth in this life. We must remember that our new birth is based on Christ's faithfulness, not our own. But lest we get overconfident, we also need to remember the ongoing presence of sin, indwelling sin, lest we set up our lives for failure. We can overemphasize the fact of our new birth, of us being new creations in Christ, and begin to neglect the other teachings of the New Testament related to our remaining sinful nature. And we can be tempted to be overconfident in our abilities and put ourselves in situations for temptation that we should never be in. Right? If all I ever do is preach to myself that I'm a new creation, the old is gone, I'm completely reborn, and we neglect the other warnings about holiness and about fighting and about spiritual warfare and about laying off and taking off, then we can put ourselves in foolish situations. If a, if a person that struggled with drunkenness only talks about his new birth, well, he might be foolish enough to think that because he's newly made in Christ, he can walk into a bar and have no temptation. That's just dumb. We need to remember both aspects in our life in this age, that we are new creations and that the old man is ever behind us. Although we have genuine freedom in Christ, it does not mean the absence of struggle. Number three, the battle for self-control requires dependence upon the Holy Spirit. The battle for self-control requires dependence upon the Holy Spirit. You can't battle against sin in your own strength. Right? If self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit, then I can't force that fruit to grow on my own any more than I can force the pecan trees in my yard to bear pecans. Right? I can tend the ground, I can water, I can pull weeds... But the growth belongs to God. Likewise, in my own strength, I can't force the growth of the Holy Spirit, but I can tend the weeds of sin. I can stir my affections towards Christ by reading the Bible and meditating in prayer. I can nurture my soul by tending faithfully to the means of grace, right? Preaching, prayer, the sacraments. But I can't muscle my way into spiritual maturity without the Holy Spirit's abiding presence and help. Right, let me give you some practical examples. So, a glutton swears that he'll never overeat again when he walks out of the buffet and feels like he's going to vomit. Right, in that moment, he swears 
He'll never do it again. The drunkard swears off liquor when he wakes up and he feels like his head's in a vice. I'm never touching it again. Adulterers might feel shame and remorse when they wake up in someone else's bed. But many of these examples, regardless of how much shame and determination they felt at the time, will end up back in the same sin like a dog running back to its vomit. Now why is that? They felt so sure in the moment, right? I'm never going to look at pornography again. Never. And then they end up back there again. It's because their repentance is often not genuine and their efforts to curb the indulgence are external. They're fleshly rather than dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Right? The shame of overindulgence may make a glutton swear, I'm going to go on a diet, I'm going to join a gym, I'm going to download that exercise app, I'm going to eat, I'm going to buy a whole week's worth of vegetables. Right? And before that week's out, he's back at the buffet. What happened? Right? None of those things that he did were spiritual in nature, and he's trying to solve a spiritual problem. He's using fleshly weapons in a spiritual battle. So the battle for self-control requires our dependence upon the Holy Spirit, which leads to my next point, point four. Self-control is not a matter of behavioral modification. It's a matter of the heart. Self-control is not about behavior modification. It's a matter of the heart. I could say it another way. Self-control is really fought at the level of desire and affections. Not at the level of action. Self-control is fought at the level of affections, of desires, before it's ever fought at the level of action. Right? This is related to the previous point about the spiritual nature of the battle. But we can be tempted to try and produce spiritual fruit, like self-control, via fleshly means. Which doesn't address the heart of the issue, which is my heart. A drunkard might be tempted to think he is successful in killing the sin of drunkenness because he's poured all the alcohol in his house down the drain and he's changed his route home so he didn't drive past the old bar. A man struggling with lust might put content blockers on his computer and his phone, which are good and necessary sometimes, but those things just eliminate some of the occasions for stumbling. They don't and cannot address the core of the issue, which is the heart. And we can be tempted to put our faith in those external barriers, right? I am winning the battle against lust because I've put up these blockers without once addressing the heart that is prone to jump back towards lusting. See, we want to be the kind of people that wisely put up barriers, but that has a dependence upon Christ the whole time and is seeking to cultivate a love and a joy for him that stirs our affections to where we used to be drawn towards that kind of filth and now we're repulsed by it. That's where we want to be. Not merely changing behavior, right? Decreasing the frequency and the severity of our overindulgences. We want to have hearts that love God so much that we would be ashamed of even thinking of going there. 
We want to prayerfully seek to root out whatever sinful desires we have and to kill them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? The drunkard might need his friend to help him avoid the bar, but eventually we want to get to where he has a stability of heart to where he's not even tempted towards drunkenness. The lustful man might need software on his computer, but we want to get to the point that his love for Christ is so deep and abiding and his contentment in his wife is so strong that he's been able to cut lust right at the root, the level of a heart. Self-control is not merely about behavior modification. It's about the heart. Fifth, finally, the battle for self-control is a group effort. The battle for self-control is a group effort. From the very beginning, we have a jarring transition in Genesis. God makes something and says it's good. God makes something and says it's good. God makes something and says it's good. God makes Adam and it's not good that he's alone. God blessed him with a companion, right? We likewise need to remember that we are in a battle And when we're battling enslavement and we're battling to grow in self-control, that we need help, right? Drunkards don't beat alcoholism alone. Gluttons can't curb their overindulgence on their own. Adulterers don't become chaste in their heart without the help of godly companions. We were designed for faithful, loving, close, new covenant community. We were We're called to be concerned with each other's well-being and each other's spiritual development to spur one another on in the fight towards holiness. And we may not all need the same kind of help, but we all need help, right? Some in the church can and do need strong intervention. They need someone to hold them accountable, to, to find them out in the shadows of sin, right? It may be that there's a drunkard that we have to drag away from the bar in love. Others of us may not need that. We may need encouragement to just keep pressing on in the good fight of faith. Others might need mentoring, right? They've never had a godly father or a godly mother. They're not sure what it looks like to be a faithful man and a faithful woman in in a Christian church. And so they need to be mentored, right? All of us, regardless of our situation, need the prayers of the saints, right? If we're going to survive survive in this spiritual war zone that is life in this age, we need each other. If we want to grow in spiritual fruit, especially the fruit of self-control, then we need each other. We need to pray for one another. We need help battling against our enslaving sins that can ever blind us. The sins that cling so closely. The battle for self-control is a group effort. So as I close tonight, I want to speak to a few different groups in the room about self-control. Right? To those that are here or that are watching in Facebook world. If you're not a Christian, then I want you to hear the warnings of Scripture that you are enslaved to sin right now. And you are bound towards death. Outside of Jesus Christ, it is impossible for you to break your enslavement to sin. Right? However self-controlled you might look, however disciplined you are in your regimen, 
you're doing it out of the wrong motives and without Christ as your master. You may think you're self-controlled and temperate, that you haven't murdered anyone, that you're not a drunk, but Christ makes clear that if we've gotten angry one time, we've murdered someone in our hearts. If we've overindulged one time in any way, if we've gotten drunk, drunk once, if we've sinfully overeaten one time, then we sinned against a holy God and he will come and he will be our judge and he will expose our enslavement to sin and reward us with an eternity in hell. So I call upon you to turn to him this very day. Read of him in scripture. See how Christ came and died for the ungodly so that they might be liberated from their slavery to sin and freed to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Second, to our young ones, to our children. I encourage you to consider how you're walking in self-control now. Right? You are setting yourself now into patterns of life that will be hard to break later. I wish I had heeded this when I was younger. Right? Consider how you spend your time, how you spend your energies, how you spend your money. What do you do in your free time? And ask yourself this question. What would be the result if that pattern remained unchanged until my deathbed? It's a good question for all of us. We all like to think, well, I'll change when this happens, right? When I graduate high school, then it'll be different. Well, when I get out of college and get a real job, then it'll be different. Right? Then I'll start saving some money, or then I'll quit wasting my time. Or when I get married, or when I retire, or whatever it is. If your patterns of self-control or overindulgence remain unchanged until your deathbed, what's going to be the fruit of that? And I ask you, young ones especially, am I wise in my liberties now? Am I self-controlled? Am I temperate? Or are there changes that I need to make lest I be trapped in the deep ruts of habit that were formed in my youth? And for all of us, I want to encourage us to continue the good fight of faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is war, and it is hard. And remember how Paul starts his discussion of spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, right? He says, don't muster up your strength. I know he says, stand in the power of his might. Stand in the power of his might. Don't fight on your own strength. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Lean on your brothers and sisters who are here to help you. And keep your gaze upon Jesus, who died in the place of sinners. And so tonight, to help us down the road of faith, we have the blessing again to join around the table of Christ who died in the place of drunks and gluttons and sinners of every kind so that they might be set free from slavery to sin and become slaves to righteousness. This table is for all who have come to faith in Jesus, those who are marked by the fruit of discipleship found in Acts chapter 2. Right? They're devoted to the apostolic teaching found in God's word, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And if that's you, I invite you to join us at the table. But if you have not come to Christ or if you are out of fellowship with him and his church, then let these plates pass. Come to him in repentance and reconcile with him and his church, and then you may join us. Let me pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time. Holy Father, we ask that you would take these 
ordinary elements and that you would do something extraordinary with them. That you would feed us, not merely our bodies, that you would nourish our very souls. That this picture of Christ and his faithfulness and his work in our place might sustain us, right? That might lift us up when we are weary from the spiritual warfare of this life. That might give us hope even though we might see the temptations of enslavement all around us. Help us to remember that you are feeding us week after week by your word and through these pictures of your word. Grant us strength and faith this this night. In Christ's name, amen. Table servants, please come.